You know, the sad truth is that if you were to do a study of history, what you would discover is that men have often used power to suppress the uh, rights and dignity of the weak, uh, and in particular, women. And this was long before you started reading about guys like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby. Uh, if you were just to do a, a survey of history, you would find that many have abused women or have not treated them as being equal to men. Uh, and sometimes this has been done in the name of religion. In fact, political feminism arose with women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who in 1848 uh, argued that women deserved equal rights under the law, uh, fighting for the right to equal pay, voting, property, and, and rights to marriage and divorce. Uh, In fact, um, this began to shape the way uh, that they saw the world and spoke into the world. Uh, Today, if you were to look at a feminist dictionary, uh, you might find a a definition that goes something like this by Cherish Cramere, who says this. She says, feminism is actually the radical notion that women are human beings. Let me be really clear. Uh, the The notion that women are human beings is radically biblical and radically true. Uh, The fact that the idea is radical in any context, I believe, actually just shows us how broken the world that we live in is. And see, we're back in our Hopeful Exile series this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, where we are being confronted with one of those texts that would have been explosive to these mostly Gentile Christians in the audience that he was speaking to living in Asia Minor. See, there they were experiencing a variety of persecutions uh, and, and, and difficulties because of their new faith, ranging from small-range social alienation uh, to larger-scale political uh, uh, ragings. And so we find this all over the place in First Peter. And the Bible confronts, if we really understand it, every culture to some degree. Every context is going to be corrected in some ways by the Bible. We should expect that. The Bible confronts every culture. But when Peter tells wives, be subject to your own husbands, catch this, that would have been radical for a different reason to them and that culture than it is for us today. I think it's helpful just to take note of that. You know, for them, it would have been radical for a woman to actually hold a different religion than their husband. We're going to see that later. But Peter here tells wives that they are to hold firm to the faith in all submission to win their husbands who'd faith in Christ. Of course, this is also explosive in our culture for other reasons, right? I mean, we're right in the throes of the Me Too movement where countless women have come forward and shared stories of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. They've been given a voice to describe the fact that they have had those who are in power who have treated them as those who are weak in ways that are abusive. And see, culturally, we've seen that men in power have treated women as less than human in all kinds of outrageous and deplorable ways. And it's easy to lose our way in all of this. And have this conversation shape the way that we understand God's word in the world that we live in. I just read an article by Susan Brayford in the Journal for Biblical Literature. And she said this. She said, the only real option for feminists who refuse to reject the Bible completely is to use the Bible's own methods for revising outdated laws. Now, if you hear that and you're thinking that doesn't sound so bad, she must be thinking about uh, outdated laws like the ones that we find about in the book of Leviticus. 
Um, right before that, she was talking about the law she sees in 1 Timothy, speaking to women in the church. Yet, if God's word is true concerning the nature of the human heart and sin and this world being broken, then we really ought, I believe, to expect God's word to bring at least as much transformation as affirmation. Does that make sense? If, if God's word is true in the fact that we are sinners and broken, and that God's word is true and that we are the ones that need to be fixed, then we should expect that when we go to the Bible, that we should find at least as much transformation, need to change, as we do affirmation and the sense of, yeah, I kind of like what that said, that's what I believe, so that must be good. That's not the way the Bible works in our lives. We should expect an ethic from God to transcend culture rather than accommodating us to it. And God meets us where we are, but catch this, he never leaves us there. God tells us in his word that we need to be changed. And this morning, God desires, I believe, to recalibrate all of our hearts and lives to reflect a more biblical view of wives in marriage. Our big idea this morning is this, it's that wives display the power of the gospel through inner beauty, not outer beauty. Wives, they display the power of the gospel through inner beauty, not outer beauty. And let me just pray for us really quickly as we go into this text that the Lord would help us. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are praying and asking that you would speak to us, that you would use your word to come and transform and shape our hearts more into the image of Jesus Christ. That we would think with the mind of Christ. Lord, we need your help. We are broken. We live in a broken world. And we need you to change and shape and fashion us in the way that you have made us to live. Lord, help us by the power of your spirit to evidence the power of the new creation. And it's in your name we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we're going to see in this text this morning is in verses 1 to 2. And that's this. That Christian wives should submit to their husbands. Uh, Christian wives should submit to their husbands. And yes, I was excited about preaching this text. All I could think all week was, well, it's time to fix some stuff, right? Uh, Not at all. Um, In fact, this was not the text that if I had a choice to skip that I would have skipped, except the next one where um, Josh is going to be talking about husbands living in an understanding way. And I felt like he would be better qualified than me. So this is what I get. Uh, Christians, Christian wives should submit to their husband in verses 1 to 2. But look at that, those verses again, and catch what Peter says to wives here. Here's what he says. He says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, Here we see a a couple of things. First, notice that he does say wives be subject. And that word likewise that begins verse 1 is important. It's connected to something. And it seems to connect back to the conversation that began all the way back in chapter 2, verse 11. Where Peter, you'll remember that he says that until Jesus returns. And by the way, Jesus is coming back and I can't wait. He says, until that day, their war is against the flesh not flesh and blood. Do you understand that distinction? Your war is against the flesh, not flesh and blood. See, flesh and blood really speaks of other people. It's a sense that my my problems are out there and external. Uh, And what we find in the Bible is, is that we do have problems that are out there. 
right? There really are people that cause us trouble. But so often the Bible says people might be the occasion of our struggle, but Peter's real concern is the root cause of the war and the fight. And that cause, he says, is the flesh, that internal bent towards self-centeredness rather than self-sacrifice. See, Peter proceeds to show how submission to flesh and blood relationships is really where the flesh rages most. It's where we see it most at act. You see this uh, in verse 13 where he says, so here's what I want to see you do. I want you to, as citizens, to be subject to civil authorities. And then you'll notice he, he uses that same phrase to be subject to in verse 18 where he tells servants to be subject to their masters before telling wives in 1 Peter 3, 1, likewise, be subject to your own husbands. Did you see that? See, Peter makes a clarification and he gives a point of reference here uh, for the purpose of what he is saying. He, he gives a clarification and then he gives a purpose. He clarifies that wives submit to their own husbands. So in other words, you don't have to submit to every husband as a woman. He's speaking to a particular relationship. The husband that you have committed yourself to in marriage is the one that he is speaking about. And I would add that as you think about that submission, even there we find elsewhere in scripture that submission actually takes on different shape depending on the nature of the relationship, right? So, so submission to civil authorities doesn't look exactly the same as, say, submission to a, a boss or submission to a spouse or a child's suspic- uh, su- submission to his parents, right? I mean, I, I don't know how you treat your wives, guys, out there, but um, I once tried to send Carrie to her room, and that didn't work out so well, right? But my sons, if they disobey, they're going to their rooms, And so we need to understand that when we read the word submission, there is a way in which there is a context of the relationship that actually gives meaning and life to what it looks like. So if you're thinking that it looks the same for your child to submit to you as your wife, then I think you've misunderstood God. Now at its heart, submission means two opposing wills uh, confronting one another, and one of those wills chooses to follow the other will. That, that's what it's talking about at its heart, at its root. There is at some point two wills that are in disagreement and, and one must be followed and somebody submits to that will. So biblical submission is neither mindless nor voiceless. It is neither mindless nor voiceless. Of course, this does not mean that someone, someone submits in a mindless way to a husband who is calling for clear disobedience to God's word. I've seen this actually done um, I actually heard recently of a, a story of uh, another man in a church who was actually in leadership, uh, and his wife, uh, he t- asked his wife to have another woman into their bedroom, and she did, and when it happened, the relationship, of course, blew up, and when they went to the, the elders, uh, the elders said, what were you doing? And she said, well, I was just submitting to my husband, who's a leader in the church. And that's not the vision of submission that we have in the Bible. Uh, we do not mindlessly go against the clear word of God. So it's not mindless submission. It's also not, uh, mindless submission is not a godly submission. God is, is, he, he has created women in his image to be thoughtful creatures before him. Thoughtful and mindful. He's created you intelligence with minds. It wasn't by accident. It was because he wants you to use that mind to the glory of his name. And neither is it a voiceless submission. You know, verse 7 calls women co-heirs of grace, which we're going to be thinking about next week. 
Now, that is not like weird in the Bible, that they would be called co-heirs of grace. Might have been weird uh, in the cultural context that Peter's writing into, but, but not in the Bible. Because you remember in Genesis 1, that God created all things good, and then he created man and woman very good, and he created them for this purpose, that they might exercise dominion over the earth. That they might be co-regents over all of creation to the glory of God. See, a godly husband is constantly listening to and learning from his wife how to lead his family sacrificially. But catch this. At the end of the day, when the two wills and marriage both agree with God's will, they agree with God's will, but disagree with each other, the husband is responsible for making that final decision. And catch this, guys. You will be held responsible before God one day for that decision. You know, there's a, a kind of freedom that comes with submitting to godly authorities. It's true, there's a beauty to it. There's a freedom. And one of the things that I love uh, is even as elders, uh, we are elders, leaders in the church, and one of the things that I love is that uh, we have a multiplicity of elders, and we often have to vote on things, and we often have disagreements. And at the end of the day, uh, there have been many times where I've really strongly wanted something, and I didn't get it. And I was like, man, that makes me mad, Right? One day I had a brother call me up and say, uh, hey, are we okay? Because I know that you wanted something else really strongly. And uh, I said, oh yeah, I'm going to sleep great tonight. And he's like, what? I was like, well, well, yeah, I mean, the Lord has set it up this way that his Holy Spirit would actually use a multiplicity of leaders. And, and I'm grateful that tonight I can sleep well knowing that I am trusting God's leadership in the way that he has established it. And so I'm going to sleep great. And wives, you can sleep great in that same way. When you are speaking in your husband's lives and he makes that final decision and you disagree, you can trust that you're not just trusting his wisdom, but you're trusting God's wisdom. It's a beautiful thing. It's not always as easy. Sometimes I get real mad. I don't like that we don't go my way. But I continue to remind myself of the truth of God's word, that he has set things up in such a way to bring himself glory through community. Now, single ladies, as you think about this, I'm just curious, as you think about the nature of what God's word is calling you to do here, he's calling you to to submit to your husband someday if you were married. I'm wondering if that would cause you to think differently at all about the guys that you pursue. If you knew that God would call you to submit to the man that you married at the end of the day, Think about that, day in and day out. Think about it. Every marriage will experience the opposing of wills. Uh, I, I promise you. But not every marriage has to experience it at every turn, at every moment, right? And so if you're thinking about what does it look like to have a godly husband, then maybe there are a, a few things that you should be thinking about. Uh, you can write these down and think about these later. But here's one. Think about how much friction will result from marrying a non-Christian who will not seek to obey God's will. I mean, one of the glorious things about marrying a, a Christian as a Christian is you know that some of those fundamental beliefs that you have and you share are in common, and it makes it just easier, right? It makes it easier. There's not as much friction. Now, does it make it easy? No, it's still hard, but it's easier. So if you find someone who loves Jesus, it's going to make it easier. You know, usually women feel this more so when they have kids or when they're going to church or pursuing Christ. And in the home results in a battle of wills. You know, we have a number of godly women who are married to, uh, to non-Christian men in our congregation. Brave, godly, faithful women. Maybe it would be good if you're thinking about going down that road to talk to one of them about how they would counsel you towards choosing a husband. Uh, but another thing you should think about, second, is if he is a Christian, is he a mature Christian who puts Christ first and then the good of others 
before his own interest. Does that make sense? Is it when you look at him, you, you notice that the way that he uses his money and his time, not all the time, but normally, usually, is Christ others than himself? Or is it kind of reversed? Like he's, he's a selfish guy who's definitely always into his time and his things. And then once those are done, maybe he'll care for you. And then if there's any time left, he might squeak out a little bit of time for Jesus one Sunday a month or something like that. Like I would look and make sure that the order is, is right. Make sure. Does he consistently put selfish interests ahead of Christ and others? You know, I, I think a great way to, to help you establish and understand those things is to go through pre-engagement counseling that we offer here. We've had a number of couples uh, who have been going through that recently. It's been a great way to, to really talk about those hard places where wills tend to come into friction. And we've been able to see a number of couples deal with some of those before marriage, before the ring, before the date, before the dress is bought, before it's hard to change your mind. Third, third thing to think about is wouldn't you want to know how a man leads you through conflict before you're married? Wouldn't you want to know that? You don't want that to be a surprise when you get into the relationship. I'm not saying go cause a fight. You don't really have to do that. It usually will happen. You just have to give it some time. And in that, does he display fruits of the Spirit? Is he gentle, kind, and patient? Or is he wise, arrogant, and short-tempered? Is he a repentant man? Those are things that you need time to find out. There's a a second thing that we find here in in verses 1 and 2. Notice the purpose of subjecting in this relationship and what he says. See, Peter clarifies that wives are to submit to their own husband... And then he gives the purpose for it. He says this. He says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, we've seen elsewhere that the word, Peter uses that to talk about the gospel, as he does in 1 Peter 2.8. He speaks of those who disobey the word, those who are not believers. And just as servants are called to serve morally bankrupt masters, wives here are called to submit to husbands who are not believers. I think unbelieving husbands are in immediate view here, but notice that even if, even if they are those who do not obey the word, I think that that word, that little phrase actually implies that Peter's making here a kind of case from the the greater to the lesser. See, he, he begins there and then works backwards just to kind of resolve any questions that might erupt. You know, some might have heard this and said, well, my husband's not a Christian, so surely you're not talking to me. And so he says, yeah, I'm talking about that, and then husbands in general. And see, Peter begins here and works back, and he says, be subject to the husband who does not submit to the word so that he might be won by your conduct without words. Now, you might be reading that and thinking to yourself, this sounds like the quote wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You've probably heard this. Preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Uh, sounds like him, but problem is he didn't actually say it as far as we can tell. But that also is a, a phrase that I, I don't think really encapsulates what's going here in Peter. Because remember, this is a whole letter that's been written. And we, we know that this isn't what Peter's saying since he just told all of them that they were born again through the word of God. In 1 Peter 1.23. And, and that even that phrase at the end of verse 2 points to the saying, when they, are, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now that word for respectful, you see that? It actually would be better translated when they see your pure conduct in fear. That's the word for fear. And so this is really a wife's reverent fear. Fear for what? The husband? No, this is speaking of a biblical kind of fear of God. 
So that this husband might witness and testify that she is acting in pure conduct because of the fear that she has before the Lord. He knows that it's because of God and not him. And the husband has heard enough from his wife to know that her God compels her to submit to him. It's more likely these wives have shared the gospel with their unbelieving husbands and they've rejected it. And Peter's saying, look, don't continue to badger him with the gospel Continue to show him the power of the gospel through your life and your conduct so that he might be one through that. See, he is saying that your pure pure conduct will be on display. And what a promise that Jesus gives us about those who have pure conduct that comes from a pure heart. He promises us that they shall see God. See, pure hearts give birth to pure conduct. Now, uh, there are a number of things that I think are important to notice here. First, we need to expect the word of God to revise us rather than us revising it. Did you catch that? We should expect the word of God to revise us rather than us revising it. You know, these verses, they are socially radical now, but they were socially radical for different reasons then. Uh, in fact, commentator Peter Ochtemeyer, he picks up on this, describing the opinion of women amongst the elite, the educated of the Greco-Roman world at this time. And he says this, the woman was uh, by nature inferior to the man. Because she lacked the capacity for reason that the male had. She was ruled rather by her emotions. And was as a result given to poor judgment, morality, intemperance, wickedness, avarice. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result it was her place to obey. It's for this reason in the first century that Plutarch, he said this, this historian, this Greek-Roman historian, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods who her, home, who her husband worships. Do you see that? She can't even choose her own gods for herself. She needs to worship the gods of her husband. Now, what would have been socially radical for Peter's audience is that he never encourages them to worship the gods of her husband like the Roman wives do. Or to obey a husband commanding disobedience to Jesus. See, our culture doesn't bat an eye at a spouse having different gods, do we? That doesn't seem radical. But the same word is radical to us for different reasons, and so it is with every culture. And we should feel the burn of our wills submitting to God's and trust that God's word is truer and better for me than doing what is right from from my own eyes. Are we there? Do we see that? We need God's word to shape and change us, and we need it to do it here. But notice second here as well, that the diverse roles, they do not translate into different values. The diverse roles that we find biblically for men and women, they do not translate into different values. See, our culture teaches that really sex is about biology, but that gender is about psychology. Uh, Sex is something that you are born with. Gender is something that you decide for yourself. And people can choose the gender that they identify with. But Christians, we believe this radical claim. That God created gender for his glory with purpose intentionally to magnify himself. We believe that it wasn't an accident or something that he just left up to us to chance. It is something that he wanted to use to show the power and the glory of the union between Christ Jesus and the church. And so our church holds to a a complementarian position. What that means is that we believe that God created all humans with an equal uh, value and dignity and worth and intelligence. And, And that God also created us with different roles in the home and the church. Because catch this, God did not want humanity to look like oatmeal, right? 
He didn't say like, we're going to have one food today, oatmeal, and everything's going to taste like oatmeal. No, God said, I want a diverse creation with diverse people who come together into their, their diversity to bring glory to God. God did that for the glory of his name. That's exactly the reason that we revel in that. See, husbands lead their wives who submit to their leadership just as the church submits to Christ in Ephesians 5. And in Peter's day, submission of the wife would, be, would not be startling. Not at all. See, Peter calling them co-heirs of the grace of life in verse 7 would be startling in their culture. Now, that might have sounded startling to Peter's culture, but not in the Scriptures. In fact, Genesis 1 says that God created man and woman to exercise dominion over the earth. And the point is that submission of the wife to her husband doesn't lessen her value as a human, but expresses her freedom in Christ. But notice third here, another important point that we need to take note of is this, that the purpose of godly conduct is winning her non-Christian husband. Did you see that? The, the purpose of this godly conduct is winning this non-Christian husband. It's likely, again, that this even if implies that most of the wives have Christian husbands, but, but the Christian wife confronted with a non-Christian husband is called to live to show her spouse the power of the gospel. Commentator Tom Schreiner speaks on this, and he explains unbelieving husbands may be alienated by wives who constantly beg them to become Christians. A better course is to live a faithful Christian life, and as they see the transformation of their wives, they are more likely to be inclined to adopt the faith of their wives. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that if you are a a woman or a wife who is being abused, we are encouraging you to just grin and bear it. I've heard pastors say that. That is far from where we are as a church. In fact, we've on a number of times tried to help women and children who are in abusive situations. And if that's you, please tell us. We want to help you. But our elders, as we look at this, understand and believe that what this is truly is a call to bravely, thoughtfully endeavor to show a non-Christian man the power of the gospel in your pure conduct. Now, there's a second thing that we find in this text in verses 3 to 4, though. Notice this. He says, Christian wives adorn what matters. Christian wives adorn what matters. So notice here how Peter redirects attention from the flesh and blood occasion of their struggle to the root issue of the flesh or the heart struggle with sin. Notice, he's moving from uh, something that is outward to the heart. Here's what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says this, Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear... But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So here we we see what, what Peter is trying to do. He is first saying, don't focus on adorning the outside. Don't focus on adorning the outside. Now, when some of you hear this, uh, I'm sure some of you women are thinking to yourself, oh, this is why Christians can't have nice things, Right? But, but I don't think that's at all what's going on. See, I think that misses the point. Interestingly, Peter actually sounds a lot like pagan moralists of his day who called women to dress modestly rather than gaudily or seductively. Uh, he, he, a lot of uh, other uh, first century Greek Roman uh, philosophers like Plutarch or biographers uh, would have written something like what he wrote. He says, what adorns a woman which makes her more decorous Not gold, emerald, scarlet, but whatever invests her with dignity, good behavior, and modesty. 
See, the image of adorning here is that of taking time to decorate what is external, what is on the outside. It's not that you can't have nice things. It's the the heart preoccupation with what is on the outside and what is visible. And so he's asking these wives, what is it that you are investing your hearts and your time and your money in? What is it? He's not saying don't use makeup. He's asking, is that your focus? He's not saying don't wear clothes or even nice clothes. He's asking if this is what consumes your time. And he's not saying don't wear jewelry, but he's asking if you spend a disproportionate amount of money on your jewelry to the extent that you're unable to be generous, especially for gospel purposes, that might be a problem. You know, he could have also asked, are you so fixated on a bigger house or a nicer car or better schools for your kids that it's muting the power and your confidence in the gospel? You're so, you discuss these other things so much that your husband doesn't hear that your confidence is actually in God and in Christ. Has it become that these things have so taken over your conversations and your thought life and your dreams that your husband no longer sees that the coming kingdom is more valuable and precious and that you're treasuring up treasures in heaven? You know, Scottsdale employs more plastic surgeons per capita than any other city in the United States. Plastic surgery is not necessarily sinful, but it could be. And in the same way, having nice things isn't sinful, but what your heart does with those things could be. So notice how Peter seeks to refocus wives positively. He says this, don't do that, but do this, adorn the heart. Did you see that? Peter says, let your adorning be the internal, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now this sounds like 1 Samuel 16, 7 that we read before the service. This idea of God looking on the heart. Uh, There you'll remember that God tells Samuel, who's looking for God's king, not man's king, he says, remember this, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, the only person who can see us as we truly are in our thought life is God himself. And here Peter's saying, don't waste so much time and energy on the fleeting outward beauty that withers like a flower under the scorching heat of a Phoenician sun. Like you're putting all of your energy there. Adorn yourself instead with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. Now, I see a couple of things here, important realities. First, take note that wives, wives should worry more about how God sees them than man. Did you take note of that? You should be more concerned about how God sees you than man. God is not impressed by good makeup and, and nice jewels and nice dress. That's not what he's, he's not impressed by those things. Not saying they're unimportant, but it's, it's just not what impresses God. So ladies, just consider how incredible this is. 1 Peter 1.7 says, The tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes. Your, your, your tested faith, that is beautiful before God. It is precious. And here in 3.4, he says, A gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in God's sight. Now that word for precious is interesting. It actually speaks of something of great financial worth. It is a treasure. And and Peter says that treasure, we need to treasure what God treasures. 
A gentle and quiet spirit that submits. Ladies, did you know that you have to love Jesus most to love your husband best? If you want to love your husband most, you must love Jesus best. And you can become so preoccupied with how others see you that you lose sight of the awe-inspiring reality that you are living under the gaze of God who sees straight to your heart. You can become so preoccupied with who's looking at you on the outside that you lose sight of the fact that God is constantly gazing at your very soul. And if those two things are happening, people looking on the outside, God looking on the inside, which one do you think should be the thing that actually shapes and determines the way that you live and think and the way that you value yourself? Well, I would say the God thing, right? But you're constantly living under God's gaze. So what controls you? God's seeing your heart or is it man seeing your body? I'm curious. How would you dress and even shop differently if your awareness of God's undistracted gaze upon your heart actually outgrew your concerns for how man looked on your body. And another thing that's interesting in this text is this, and I think it's important. We have to ask, how do you go about adorning your heart before God? Like, how do you put your spiritual makeup on, right? Like, how do you do that? Well, I think adorning here speaks of placing focus on that inner person and cultivating that gentle and quiet spirit that he calls us to and calls you to. Of course, the Bible calls all Christians to be both gentle and quiet in the sense of not causing trouble. Uh, I think it, it's kind of got this air of uh, not being a busybody. I think that's kind of what this quietness that's being spoken of here is speaking of. I see Paul calls wives to be quiet and submissive in the home and the church in 1 Timothy 2.11. So it's not just Peter that says it. And I, I take this quiet to mean not being a busybody like Paul explains well, he's, when he's contrasting busybodiness with quietness in 2 Thessalonians 3.11-12. 2 Thessalonians 3.11-12, he's, he's kind of contrasting being a busybody and causing trouble with being quiet. Now, I take quiet here to mean not doing that. Of course, these are also fruits of the Spirit, being gentle and quiet. So how do we adorn our hearts with these things? See, we have a treasury here in our church And I hope you women know this. It's really been thrilling for my soul to see this grow over the years. We have a treasury of godly, wise, mature, gentle women who have walked with Jesus for decades. Are you taking advantage of this gift? Are you actually seeking out these women to help encourage you and to speak into your life to adorn you with the gospel? What if you had another trusted Christian lady that you could meet with to confess the ways that your heart rages against seeking to be gentle and quiet? Because, by the way, we guys are not easy, right? Like, we're not, men are not easy. The Bible does not assume that men are easy to follow. And what if you spent as much time with God's people as you spent in the gym for focusing on the internal as opposed to the external? What kind of time would that look like? What if you were as consistent with prayer and reading God's word as you are with putting on makeup? What if you were as concerned with how your heart looked before God as you were how others viewed your your life on Instagram and Facebook? Would things change? What if you prayed for your husband as much or more than you corrected him? 
And what if you spend as much or more time thinking about the log in, in your own eye as you did the speck in his eye? See, we, we have a number of women in our church who could help speak into your life in these ways. And we should, I believe, join in praying for the women in our congregation who have non-Christian husbands and are living godly lives. We should pray for them. And what about us Christian husbands? Now, Josh Griever is going to be talking to Christian husbands next week. Uh, he's going to talk to us about how we live with our wives in an understanding way. So, men, you just get ready for that. Don't skip. We'll know what you're doing. But he's going to help us. He's going to help us think through this. And we need to make sure that we treasure what God does when it comes to our wives and our daughters and our sisters in Christ and other women. Are, are we looking at women and treasuring what God treasures? If you're a godly man, you love what God loves. So when was the last time that you pointed out the inner beauty of your wife? Pointing out specific evidences of the fruits of the Spirit on display. When was the last time you did that? Have you, have you actually, I mean, I know that there's the, well, babe, you look hot tonight. That's great. But when was the last time you actually took time to notice generosity and evidences of sacrifice and evidences of kindness and thinking of others, specifically with examples. You know, man, that's going to help train and calibrate your wives towards the kinds of things that she should invest in. Now, I'm going to try to share something without completely losing it. Well, I blew that. So, <clears throat> I, um, I, was, uh, I had this image of Carrie, my wife, in my mind. And um, it was like basically from the first month that we met. And we were at a wedding. And I looked in. I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> But I saw her, I saw her, her image, and I can remember exactly what she was wearing. I can remember her smile at me. I, I just, I remember she was wearing like a black top, this white dress, these black shoes, and the biggest smile you've ever seen. And it just lit up the room. And I thought, man, there's nothing like that. Like, if she will marry me, I will marry her. And then, uh, just a few weeks ago, I watched her tell my kids she didn't have many more days and start to turn them towards Christ and the hope in the gospel and calling them to repentance. And I thought, that is categorically different. It's categorically different, that image that I had, blown out of the water by what happened in that room, turning to God, praying, loving Jesus, the hope in the gospel. And all I could think was, there is nothing like that. Now, let me just do a confession. Have I been telling her about that every day? I'm just confessing before all of you. No, I've been angry at God. I've been angry about like, losing my wife. I mean, there are all kinds of like, stressors. And yet, God is glorious. And my wife is a glorious evidence of the power of the gospel and the fruits of the Spirit on display as I watch her time after time have that conversation with person after person and turn them towards hope and Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing like it. 
Men, we, we need to be about the business of noticing evidences of the fruit of the Spirit and the inner beauty that is in our wives and other women and in our daughters and in our sisters in Christ. So if you're single and looking for a wife, let me just encourage you, brothers, look deeper than skin deep for beauty in your sisters in Christ. Protect your eyes from pornography and from images that tell you that the most important thing about them is what's outside. It is going to obscure your vision to be able to see the real beauty of God that he has created on the inside and that he is making more powerful in and through him through his Holy Spirit. Look for a gentle and quiet spirit. Look for the fruits of the spirit and treasure what God does. But there's a third thing here. That's that Christian wives consider godly wives who hope in God. Christian wives consider godly wives who hope in God. Now he closes with this illustration of Sarah Sarah from the Old Testament. This is really a fascinating illustration that he uses. But let's go ahead and read it in verses 5 to 6. He says this. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, Peter ends here by pointing us to to holy women. And and when he's speaking of holy women, he's speaking of women from the Old Testament, like uh, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah from Genesis. That's who he has in view. Now, I I take holy here actually to to describe or speak of them, uh, not in the sense that they were just holier than other women by virtue of like their just internal greatness. Like they just started off a little bit better than us. I take holy here actually to speak of those called and consecrated to God for his purposes. And notice here, Peter then zeroes in on Sarah out of these holy women, who is a a woman who is an interesting example to be used here, especially for the text that he's citing. It's really fascinating. Now, one thing that's fascinating is this. She, She was married to Abraham, right? A man famed for his faith in God. So if he's speaking to wives only that have non-Christian husbands, this would be a strange example, right? So that's why I say I think, once again, it's likely he's speaking to all wives. And I think this leads some support to the reality that God is speaking to all wives in First Peter, the text that we're reading. But you'll remember that God's promise of a son to Abraham was also to his barren wife, Sarah. Now, this verse is clarifying. Notice, they did not submit to their husbands, Because they believed their husbands were intellectually, morally, or spiritually superior to them. Uh, Their hope in God's future reward was for those who trusted him. And and it was that hope of God's future reward that drove them to submit to their husbands. Do do you see this? It, It wasn't their husband's greatness that caused them to submit. It was the greatness of God. They understood that their hope was in God, that they trusted God. Tom Schreiner explains that this verse tells how the women, the women adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. Now, if you're thinking that submission means something different in the Bible than it does in your Oxford Dictionary, uh, it, it might. But notice that verse 6 clarifies submission, saying, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, the context Peter's drawing from here is also interesting. As I said before, Peter's actually getting this from, catch this, Genesis 18, 12. Genesis 18, 12, where you'll remember there, the Lord himself actually comes and he visits with Abram and Sarah and tells them that he's going to give them a son a year from the day. And in that moment, 
Sarah laughs to herself at the promise because she'd be 90 and Abraham would be 100. I mean, that's pretty laughable, right? If you're talking about human standards, that's laughable. That's, that's impossible. But still, Abram, Abraham, she calls him Lord even as she's laughing. She says, can my Lord actually, you know, me and him actually do this? The, the way of the woman has passed from me. That's, that's crazy talk. In that moment, though, the Lord immediately turns and asks Abraham why Sarah laughed. Now, remember, she laughed in her head. She didn't laugh out loud. And asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, think about that. He sees her thoughts. She, he didn't hear it. He sees her thoughts and says, you're not trusting me in your heart, Right? And the thing that he comes back with is a question that's really important that she needs to ask herself in that moment. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, she, of course, responds, Who, me? I didn't laugh. I wasn't laughing. And then Genesis 18, 15 explains why she denied it. She denied that she laughed because she was afraid. Who was she afraid of? The Lord. She had lost sight of the greatness of of the Lord. And in that moment, she was asked again, is anything too great for the Lord? Well, yeah, if the Lord can see my thoughts, then he can make good on his promises. I, I, I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord, and that's going to shape the way that I live. The fear of the Lord will shape and change me. And Peter's use of Sarah here, I think, actually might be even more brilliant than we realize. I mean, just think about it. Sarah was famously beautiful from the outside. This is how beautiful Sarah is. She, she walks into cities, and the king says, I want her. Who do I have to kill? And Abraham goes, what? Who, me? She's my sister, right? And he uses her as, as basically a scapegoat to protect him. And Abraham used her beauty at least twice to save his own neck. But in Genesis 18, she is old. She's not the lady that's walking into city and turned turning heads anymore. I'm sure she's a looker for 90, but I'm guessing that her beauty had faded and she had no hope in God's promise of a future coming son who would be a king of a great nation and would bless the nations. She had begun to lose a grip on the promise that God gave. And God brought Sarah in Genesis 18 to an end of herself and her confidence in her beauty and in her ingenuity. Like, hey, maybe I can use Hagar, my servant, to get the kid that we need to continue the legacy where she laughed at God's promise, he, he brings her to an end of herself. But in Genesis 18, the fear of the Lord melted, catch this, it melted her laughter at God's promise and renewed her hope in God who made good on his promise. Perhaps Peter is saying, if the goal is on the salvation of your husband, you should trust God and not your external beauty to woo him towards Christ. In other words, to see God's salvation, it will take God himself. In other words, only God can save your lost husband. Don't put confidence in your looks and fear God, not a husband who's ungodly. Now, we have some godly women in our congregation who have unbelieving husbands. and They have gentle and quiet spirits and brave and strong and love the word and love God's people. And I just want to remind you, sisters, that God can save anyone. He doesn't always save unbelieving husbands, but sometimes he does. And I want to close this morning just praying for you and for your husbands. So let's pray.